Tonight, we're going to look at our second pillar. And I was thinking of how best to kind of describe it as we get started. So let me ask you a question. How many of you wear glasses or should wear glasses or contacts? Almost all of you. You ever notice that when you wear your glasses, you can see things that if you're not wearing your glasses, don't have your contacts and you can't see. In fact, that's the whole point. When you go to get your eyes examined, the optometrist, you know, puts a little chart up there and you can't see things, but then he keeps putting different lenses in and eventually it comes in crystal clearly and you say yes. And he takes those lenses and puts them in the glasses. You know, we need a set of lenses to read the Bible. We've looked at different ways over the past couple of weeks of how to read the Bible, what glasses you're going to wear. And tonight we're going to take a major step in putting the glasses on. So everything we've done thus far has kind of laid a little bit of a foundation or has been preparation for the key pillar that we're going to look at tonight. So let me pray and we'll do a little review and then we'll get started. Lord, as we gather tonight, we're mindful of your care, your provision, your love, your protection. And we confess so often that we just are indifferent toward those things. We don't think about them or we take them for granted. Lord, I pray that you, you would help us to see your care and see the beauty around us and give you thanks for all those things. And Lord, when, occasion, when we have occasion to see the real ugliness in our hearts that spills over into our lives and causes brokenness in other people, Lord, allow us to see the glory of salvation and the amazing fact that Jesus came to be our substitute and then sends the Spirit to change us so that we can now be agents of good rather than agents that actually, agents that actually bring deterioration. Lord, thanks for your word that points us in the right direction and points us in the direction of solution and points us right to Jesus. Lord, help us to learn more about him tonight and help us to put the right lenses on so that when we read the scripture, we, we're able to understand the things that you have for us there. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in a series that we're calling Pillars, and we're looking at four foundational um, markers or elements that hold up all that we do philosophically and methodologically. So these things kind of undergird um, all the ministry and all the methods and models here at Calvary. If you don't like foundational language, you can think of it this way. These four things are like four centers, you know, kind of like the center uh, of an atom, right? And the atom's in motion, it's moving, and we need to do everything we do orbiting these four. So that's kind of why pillars become important. I mentioned to you the first week, and I bring up each week, and so I hesitate to do this just to see if any of you are actually doing this. How many of you have recorded, whether it comes from Wednesday nights or not, any insight, whether a piece of paper or on your phone, anything during the past couple of weeks? Anybody? Oh, good. We have some people doing it. I, I continue to do this. And I find it really helpful. That's why I keep sharing it with you. Um, it, it really is helpful for me because I forget. We have all these thousands of inputs into our lives. Well, I need to take time to reflect, you know, kind of jot them down so I remember. And um, I used to say to uh, seminary students all the time, for every hour you read in a book, you should take about 20 minutes, 15 or 20 minutes, and think about what you read. If you don't think about what you've read, you'll either become whatever you're reading or you'll critique whatever you're reading and the books aren't changing you at all. So take a few minutes when you read, when you pray, as you go through life, before you go to bed, when you get up in the morning, assess how are things coming together? What's coalescing? What's clicking? How is the coin dropping here in ways that cause me to understand? Record it and then what things do you need to integrate and make part of your life? First week, we didn't do a pillar. We looked at our definition of ministry, and here's what we said, and ministry is a word we use all the time around Calvary, and we use it all the time around church. What is it? Here's what ministry is. It's being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. Now, that assumes we know something about where God wants people to be. It assumes we care enough about people that we're willing to come alongside them. We're not expecting or demanding that they come to where we are to start the journey. We go to where they are. So if you picture, you know, kind of like you're the bus driver, you pull the bus up to where they are and you don't stop there. You then invite people to travel with you, journey with you, and the destination is where God wants people to be. So you have to know something about where God wants people to be, where people are, and, and effective means or bridges of influence. We then looked at our four pillars, and as I said, tonight we're going to get to number two, which is kind of one of the key ones. 
We said the Bible's a big story. We've been doing that for two weeks. The Bible's Jesus story. We'll do that tonight. Mission and ministry require a prioritized theology. We'll talk about that probably in two weeks. And then gospel transformation is internal to external, which fits together. These four things aren't completely separate. They're not mutually exclusive. They kind of overlap a little bit, and you'll hopefully begin to see that tonight a little bit with the first two. So we talked about Bible for the last couple of weeks, and this is just a reminder. The Bible is a big, intimidating book. What in the world are we going to do with it? it? It's a big book. It's got lots of stuff with weird names and hard words, and bo most books you read don't have big numbers and little numbers on every page. Like, what the heck is this thing? Well, the Bible's a big book and it's intimidating. It's supposed to be God's word, which makes it important. We're, we're intimidated by it, but we know it's important. What are we going to do? Well, one of the things we shouldn't do is we treat the Bible as a collection of verses, right? A collection of little bits. And we know the cultural stories so well because we bom we're bombarded with them. News, TV shows, commercials, internet, we're bombarded with narratives. And the easiest thing in the world is to take biblical bits versus ideas, plug them in and support the wrong narrative. That's not how we should approach the Bible. That's not the set of glasses we should wear. So the Bible is a big story. And last week, um, uh, we mentioned Stephen James' quote, that when Christianity becomes something other than entering and living out the story of God, it becomes something other than Christianity. Christianity isn't over. It's still being told today. Each one of us has the potential to become both a chapter in history and of his story. The image that we use, I'm not sure if you like it or not, the image that we use is that the Bible's kind of like this giant mountain. And I've never done mountain climbing because it's cold and it's scary. But, but if you think of mountain climbing, you ever watch a show like people climbing Everest, it takes a lot of preparation and work before you get there. Not only that, it costs a lot of money. It costs well over $150,000 to climb Mount Everest. By the time you pay the Sherpa and you get the equipment and you got to do training on, a major expense. And if you don't do training and you're not prepared, you die. Um, so mountain climbing is very dangerous. It takes lots of preparation. And you need a guide. You need somebody who knows what they're doing so you're able to not get stuck in the switchbacks or the cul-de-sacs. You don't wind up climbing the false summits over and over. I'm going to show you an example of some of that tonight. But we get stuck wondering if this is the right place. Well, we need the right glasses, right? The right set of lenses to know where the summit is, the ultimate summit, and how we keep our eyes on that destination. We have six acts in our story. God creates. He's rejected. God promises, appears, sends, and restores. And I always like to remind everybody, we live over here. So we're not back at create, we're after creation, rejection, promises, appearance, and we're in the sending, we're not in the sitting stage, we're in the sending stage, the sending act where God sends us to go. We then compared that to a kind of a Old Testament chart and with God's big picture that they're working through in Heritage Hall. And so at the bottom, we have our six acts. At the top, we have the nine um, sections that, of God's big picture. And in the middle, we just have a, a basic history of the Old Testament with the divided kingdom. So you have creation here, then you have fall patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Exodus and the promised land, kings and temple. Sam, right after Solomon, the kingdom divides, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And you know, the northern kingdom doesn't last too long. Southern kingdom goes on, but eventually they experience exile. Jesus comes and he continues the line of Judah, right? So that's kind of how that picture works. Um, just Old Testament history, how it fits. God, Bible's a big, complicated book, but it's a story. It's a collection of history books. It's moving us to a destination. It's not static. The Bible is Jesus' story. And here's the second pillar. The climax is Jesus in the story. You've probably heard me say this if you attend Calvary at all. The Bible has a point and a purpose. The point is Jesus, and the purpose is to lead us to him. That, that's what I mean by the Bible is Jesus' story. Everything in the Bible moves to him and from him. He's the summit. So when you get stuck in a cul-de-sac, you're looking at a false summit, when you recognize, hey, put your Jesus glasses on in a sense, if he's not, if who he is and what he came to do isn't part of the summit, you're not there yet. All right, see how that works? And a reminder that goes along with that is that I said this a couple of weeks ago, a good reminder. The Bible's not a collection of rules. It's not a rule book. It's not a marbles that we pick out the rules we like and abstain from the ones we don't. 
The Bible's not a collection of heroes. If the Bible becomes a rule book or a collection of heroes, the Bible ultimately is self-help. I need to obey the rules and I'm in. Abstain from the things God says don't do and I'm in. If the Bible's a collection of heroes, choose the right heroes, emulate their behavior, and I'm in. If I do what they did, I'll get what they got. The Bible isn't that. The Bible actually is an adventure. It's a story, but it's a story of the hero. And this is moving us to the Bible's Christ story. The Bible's a story of a hero who comes to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a prince who leaves the palace to rescue the one he loves. Lots of stories, but all the stories tell one big story. Got it? So that kind of is leading us to the threshold. Jesus is the point and the purpose. The point is Jesus. The purpose is to lead us to him. Now you're probably sitting there, or maybe you should be sitting there thinking, well, I've been to small groups, and we never read the Bible like that. And I've heard sermons that we, we didn't really do that. You know, I went to a Sunday school class, and I'm not sure the point and the purpose was Jesus. Like, where do you get off saying that? Well, there are actually places in the Bible where the Bible itself tells us how to read and interpret the Bible. So I said a few weeks ago, right, there's kind of a vocabulary class too, right? You're going to learn some words. Um, the fancy big word hermeneutics is just interpretation. Hermeneutics means interpretation. Hermeneutics is the science and the art of interpretation. In other words, you put your hermeneutical glasses on and that allows you to see certain things. So if you put your marble glasses on, you're going to see the Bible as a collection of marbles. If you put your staircase glasses on, you're going to see all these different ways God treats people. If you put your ramp glasses on, oh yeah, this all makes perfect sense. If you put your mountain glasses on, you're going to realize it's a big complicated book, but there is a summit and I can figure it out. Two big places, there are lots of places, but here are two where it's crystal clear where Jesus tells us how to read the Bible. And so before we give you a picture and all that, Let's take some time kind of figuring out the verses. Okay, so let me give you the context. Luke chapter 24, at least the end of the chapter there, is the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. All right, so Emmaus is just a town. Now here, here's what happened. Jesus has already been crucified. Jesus is already resurrected. And so the, we read the beginning of Luke 24, the women show up at the tomb. Jesus isn't there. He's resurrected. These disciples that are traveling back to Emmaus, they've heard the reports that Jesus is raised from the dead, but they know that he died because they saw him die. So they're headed back home very discouraged. They have like no hope. They're, just, you know, they're figuring like, boy, I just didn't give away the past couple of years of my life following this guy. I may have squandered my entire life following this guy. So let's uh, read a, li a little bit of context when I find it. So Luke 24, let's start in verse 13. So here we go. Now that same day, two of them, two disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Right? This is Easter day, first Easter day. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him and not exactly sure why. Um, in fact, in a number of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, he's not immediately recognizable. Now, we're not sure, is that because the people know he's dead, so they're not expecting to see him? Is his resur resurrected body changed a little bit? It's not completely changed because he still has the scars from crucifixion, right? Still has the nail prints and hole in his side. So it's still the same. We're not sure how it's different. They don't recognize him. Mary didn't recognize him either, Deanna John. So they don't recognize him. So now Jesus, who they think is dead, as they're discouraged without hope, they're headed back home, right? Figuring out, well, I guess this was a waste. They're headed back. Jesus is now walking with them. As they're walking, Jesus asks them, what are you discussing as you walk along? Jesus usually doesn't ask questions he doesn't already know the answers to, right? So he said, oh, what are you guys talking about? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, 
Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So they're a little ticked off. Um, how long have you been around Jerusalem? You don't know what happened? Well, you're so, you're so unenlightened and dead, you don't even know what happened. What things, Jesus said? What, what things? I don't know. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. See the discouragement? They killed him. But darn it, we hoped he was the Messiah. We hoped he was the king. He's dead, so he's not the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Kings are victorious. They don't get executed. In addition, verse 22, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So they're hearing these reports. They're, they're not believing, right? They're thinking, oh, somebody took them. We don't know. He then said to them, now, little rebuke from Jesus, right? Here we go. How foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see that? There's our verse. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. At that point, the only scripture was the Old Testament. There's no Matthew, Mark, Luke, no Paul, no nothing. The only thing they got is the Old Testament. Jesus says to them, let me tell you about what the scriptures teach because it teaches about me. That's kind of interesting. Um, that is a new set of lenses, right? So here are followers of Jesus. They're, they've got the Bible. They kind of understand it, but they're not connecting it. So, so let's read and see how their eyes eventually get open. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were, he, he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So they went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their slight sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They find the other 11 disciples and tell them what happened. All right. That becomes a really key and clear passage. Now, let, let me show you who one of the, you know, kind of cul-de-sacs, how the thing kind of works by picking one of the prophets. All right. So you understand the picture. These two disciples, they know about the they know about the crucifixion. They've heard about the resurrection. They're not buying it. They know Jesus is dead. Um, they believe the Old Testament. They it's not making sense to them how it's going. Jesus shows up and tells them, explains to them what's said in all the scripture concerning himself. Now, how could they have missed it? All the religious experts. They all missed it. The scribes, you know, they, they were like the theological lawyers. The Pharisees, they were Bible experts. So if they have the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is all about Jesus, how did they miss Jesus? Well, there's a little bit of clue in that passage in that their eyes were open, right? It takes, you know, something on the part of God to open their eyes. Uh, but... Something else is going on too, and they were missing some things. They, they were getting stuck in a cul-de-sac on the mountain. So let, let's just pick one of the prophets, and I'll show you what I mean. So turn back to um, Isaiah chapter 9. I'm just going to pick a prophet, and, and Isaiah is a good one, because Isaiah has a bunch of verses that talk about Jesus as the king. So in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, uh, familiar verses, right? Isaiah's writing about the Messiah. So here's what he writes in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. 
we, you may hear, hear this at Christmas, right? <laughs> Isaiah wasn't thinking Christmas. He's just writing about the Messiah. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will, oh, excuse, I'll start in six. For unto us a child is born, to us a savior is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Those disciples on the road to Emmaus, they knew that. They knew that. So when Jesus is executed, what are they thinking? He can't be the Messiah then, right? Because the Bible says, if, if Jesus is the child that's born, and he's going to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, well, he doesn't get killed. And if the government is going to be on his shoulders and it's going to be eternal, he can't die. So if Jesus died, he can't be the Messiah. Notice what they say. We had hoped he was going to be the Messiah. We had hoped he was the one. But obviously he's not because we know what Isaiah says and Jesus is dead. That makes perfect sense, right? They know Jesus isn't the Messiah because that's what the Bible says. In fact, it gets worse. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Now let's re read that beginning in the middle of verse 4. Same kind of language, right? Beginning of a, this second sentence in verse 4. Now again, Isaiah is writing about the Messiah. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into a viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's Messiah. Those disciples, they knew that. Now do you understand? I mean, just reading two little sections, right? Now do you understand when Jesus shows up and he says, basically, I'm the Messiah. That's why Peter says, right? You are the Messiah, right? The son of the living God. And Jesus says, oh, well said. Soon after that, Jesus says, oh, by the way, there's people against me. I'm going to be tried and I'm going to be executed. What does Peter say? Jesus, don't talk like that. We believe you're the Messiah, but Messiahs don't die. Jesus, you need to read the Bible. The Bible says Messiah, right? Messiah just means king. Messiah means anointed and the kings were anointed. So in the Old Testament, Messiah means king. And all those passages that we read, those two, and there are hundreds other, maybe not hundreds, there are dozens other others, they all talk about the Messiah ruling, the Messiah reigning, the Messiah being victorious, the Messiah riding in on a white horse, the Messiah winning the day. And after the Messiah comes, Israel reigns again. That's why John and James get their mother to say, hey, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, can my two sons sit on your right and your left? Right? They believe the Old Testament. And so it's not that they don't believe, it's because they do believe. But here's the problem. They were in a cul-de-sac, right? Think of a mountain. They're, in, they're looking up and, and they see this promised, victorious, ruling king, right? Isaiah 9, Isaiah, Isaiah 11. They see it crystal clearly. But there are other parts of the mountain that they're missing. In fact... Stay in Isaiah. Turn over to Isaiah 42. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the servant songs, but Isaiah has four servant songs. In the second, the first one is Isaiah 42. A couple of verses there. The servant songs aren't just Jesus serving. The servant songs are the servant suffering. So Isaiah, 
is talking about the Messiah. Now remember, 9 and 11, right? You got it, king, victorious, bringing, and the animals are all going to play together and eat nice lines, eating grass, kids playing, whatever. you got all that, right? That, that's what Messiah is doing. And then this is also what Messiah is going to do. Verse 41, or four, chapter 41, uh, 42, verse 1. Here's my servant whom I love, my chosen, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. Now, it's a little bit of a mix there, but that Messiah sounds kind of wimpy, right? Like he's a little bruised piece of straw. He's not going to snap it off. I mean, he, the guy in chapter nine, he's riding the horse through the grain, right? He's snapping off all the grain, right? Um, a smoke or a smoldering wick, right? What? Um, yeah, I mean, he is going to bring justice, but it's sounding like the justice he brings may come through weakness. So, let me just ask you, if those are the two choices and you have to choose between, do you want a Messiah like Isaiah 9 and 11, or do you want a Messiah like 42? I want one like 9, right? I want the guy to ride in on a white horse, you know, crack the whip, bring justice into the world, kick some butt, you know, as long as it's not mine. Yeah, I, I want a Messiah. I want a king like that. But we got this crazy thing here. It gets worse. Here's the, I know you know the last of the servant songs in Isaiah 53. Now, remember, the same guy that wrote Isaiah 9 and 11 wrote Isaiah 42. So you get the ruling king, mighty God, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. He doesn't, brew, he doesn't snap off a piece of broken straw. And if a wick's smoldering, he doesn't snuff it out. What? Check this out. Actually, begin, begin reading in 13 of chapter 52. That, that's where it actually begins. Uh, bad chapter break, right? So chapter 52, verse 13. Now, this is the Messiah, right? So think chapter 9, think 11, and there are lots of other places in Isaiah, particularly in the beginning, where you get that ruling butt-kicking guy. But then you get this. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. What? And his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to retract us for it to him. Nothing in his appearance that would, should, should cause us to desire him. What? That doesn't sound like the guy in nine. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. That doesn't sound like wonderful, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, despised and low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not 
open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet those of, this gen- of his generation protested. He was cut off from the land of the living for the, tr- for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, crush the Messiah, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, there's resurrection, right? He will, see the resur- he will see the light of day, light of life, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life into death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore, he bore the sins, sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, one interesting uh, little tidbit there. It, look, look back to verse 9. I'm not sure. Ever, every, every time I read it, I always think of this. Look at verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Um, where were the wicked, you know, kind of buried back then? A common grave, right? Just kind of through. We're, we're done with them now, right? Pile them up. But the, the next phrase makes no sense. He was, a, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death. Why is, it, why is that important? I'll tell you one big reason. If Jesus was buried in an open grave with like 500 other outlaws and criminals, how would we validate the resurrection? But since in the plan of God, here's this guy who... Didn't own a home, doesn't own basically anything except the clothes on his back. That's all he had. He winds up getting buried in an unused tomb that obviously a really rich guy owned and nobody was in it yet. That becomes really important, right? Because on Easter morning, when they go to the rich guy's tomb that nobody's used before, everybody knows his body's not there. But if he was thrown in a field with a whole bunch of other criminals, nobody would know if there was a resurrection. God planned this thing kind of perfectly, right? And Isaiah talked about it, you know, centuries before it happened. It, it's, you can't make this up, right? So here's my question again. If you have a choice, you're going to follow and you're going to believe and you're going to accept the Messiah of Isaiah 9 and 11, or you're going to follow and emulate and use as an example the Messiah of the servant songs particularly 42 and 53, which of those two are you going to choose? I'll take 9 and 11. And that's exactly what everybody did. They had the glasses on, right? And the glasses were kings are victorious, Messiah's rule. We have, God is our Messiah, right? God somehow is going to work this thing out and he's going to do it in a way that he's victorious. He's not going to lose He's not going to come and be defeated. He's not going to be despised. He's not going to be outcast. He's going to rule. And so they focused on all of those verses, right? They took all those marbles out of the bag and they arranged them really well. And they could quote chapter, verse, the middle of the verse. They knew, they memorized all the verses. They knew exactly what Messiah was going to do. They chose all those powerful, victorious Messiah verses. And all the servants, suffering servants, they didn't want them. They just ignored those marbles. So what does Jesus do? Notice. Jesus is walking with two people on the road to Emmaus, and they're really discouraged. They're discouraged because they thought Jesus was the Messiah, just like Isaiah 9 and 11. They thought he was that. But now he's dead, so they know he's not that. We had, remember what we read earlier? We had hoped He was the Messiah, but obviously he's not. So what's Jesus do? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, all Old Testament, Jesus explained to them what was said about him in all the scriptures. What was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I don't know 
But I wouldn't be real surprised if one day we meet these two disciples from Emmaus and they say, we had like an exposition of Isaiah on the road to Emmaus. And boy, we were seeing 9 and 11 crystal clearly. We weren't into that 40, 42, 49, 53 stuff. Jesus comes along and says, yeah, you need to get into the 42, 49, 53 stuff because that's part of the story too. In fact, that part of the story comes before the other part of the story. It's one big story. You just have the chapters out of order. Funny how that works, isn't it? The Bible's a story, but it's got twists and turns and cul-de-sacs. And, and it's easy if you're not going to keep the big story in mind and you don't have the chapters in mind. It's easy to look to a false summit. It's easy to look to Isaiah 9 and 11 without any of the Isaiah 42, 40, 53 stuff, right? Keep the big picture in view and allow Jesus to show you how to read the Bible, right? He's showing them how to read the Bible. He shows us how to read the Bible. Put the right glasses on. The Old Testament speaks of him. All right, we got another one. Uh, John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 5. And let's read what John says. Just to get the comment, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It'd be good for you sometime to do it, <laughs> to get the context. But notice, what's going to happen at the end of the chapter is an answer to the question in, in verse 12. So if you look at John 5, 12, here's the question. Who is this? Like, who is this guy? How does he get off healing people on the Sabbath? disobeying what we know the Bible. Who does he think he is? Who is he? That's the question. Well, toward the end of the chapter, then Jesus starts giving the answer. And here's what he says, beginning in verse uh, 31. Let me, let me bring out some witnesses in a sense. Let me bring out some witnesses. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Witness number one, John the Baptist. You all thought he was a prophet, right? What did he say? He was telling you who I was. Do you believe him or not? Um, if you don't believe him, then okay, tough luck. If you do believe him, why don't you believe in me? His mission was to point to me. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it so that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing, they testify that the Father has sent me. So check out what I'm doing. I'm not just doing raw demonstrations of power. The miracles that I'm producing are foretaste of the kingdom. They go back to the beginning, God's original intention, and they speak to the end, the culmination. That's what I'm doing. Do you want to know who I am? Ask John. Do you want to know who I am? Just look what I'm doing. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. And here it is. You study the scriptures diligently. Because you think in them you have eternal life. Look at this sentence. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That's showing you how to read the Bible, isn't it? Kinds sounds similar to Luke 24, right? You study the scriptures diligently. Good, attaboy, good, good job. <laughs> because you think in them you have eternal life. <laughs> but those scriptures are the very scriptures that point to me, yet you refuse to come to me. Now, I don't think it's coincidental that um, Jesus speaks in that same context about John the Baptist. Okay, so here's John. John spent the majority of his ministry, especially toward the second half, Basically saying, I'm not the one, I'm, right? People go, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the one. John, I think you're the Messiah. Only Messiah talks like you. I think you're the one. I am not the one. John spent half of his ministry saying, I'm not the one. He's the one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, right? John spent most, I'm not the one. He's the one. This is hard for some Christians understand. 
That's exactly what the Bible does. The Bible says, I'm not the one. He's the one. It's not in keeping what you think the rules and regulations are emulating the heroes. It's pointing to Jesus what the Bible does. You don't have life because you memorized the Bible. You know lots of Bible. You have life because the Bible led you to Jesus and you believe in him and what he did for you. The Bible tells you who Jesus is and what he did. That's where life is found. Life's not found in getting all the Bible stuff together and then trying to follow it. Life's found in following the one to whom the Bible points. Just like John the Baptist. I'm not the one. He's the one. The Bible says, I'm not the one. He's the one. And you learn about him in the pages of the Bible. Does that make sense? That's a little different way of looking at things, right? Please, I'm not saying to you the Bible's not important. The Bible's absolutely essential. But the purpose of the Bible is not to call attention to itself and its rules and regulations. The purpose of the Bible is to point you to him. That's how it works. Got it? All right, so let's um, see if we can add, add one more thing that may be how some of this gets trained. Oh, I thought there was an Acts verse in here. Uh, we'll come up to it later, I think. All right, so here's a timeline of salvation. We got the whole thing up there. Uh, look at the center screen. It'll come up in parts. All right, there, there's the timeline from creation to new creation. Our storyline fits right in there, right? And so remember, God did not start or begin to exist at creation. God exists eternally, eternally over here, right? God exists forever and ever and ever before there was a beginning. But one day, Father, Son, and Spirit said, you know what, I, I, think, I think we'll make some stuff. Then creation, right? But God doesn't begin at creation. God begins never, right, before the etern in eternity before creation. Then, new creations on the other side, that's Revelation 22. And it's kind of, if you've never done this, you should really do it. Read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then read Revelation 21 and 22, and you'll see the mirror image. So, the creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and the new creation, Revelation 21, 22, are mirror images. In a sense, God says, my original intention will come to fruition. Sin will not win, and rebellious people will not thwart my original intention. Just check the end of the book. It's exactly as I said. So we got creation, new creation, and there's our storyline. Jesus is maybe not exactly center in time, but he's kind of center in the picture. Um, the cross is Jesus, right? The text over here, I can't see it. this text, since it's before Jesus, this is Old Testament. Any text over here would be New Testament, and we are on that line. So we don't get a different line. This is what I tried to say a, a couple of weeks ago. When we read the Bible, we're reading our story. So we're not on a different plane. We're, not, we're on this plane. This is our story. And we live out this story. We're after creation, after Old Testament, after Jesus. We're in this sent stage. So we're over here. The Bible, New Testament gets finished in here. We're over here. We're still on the same line. Got it? All right. So then the Old Testament, let's, uh, let's see how this works. So. Have you ever heard, well, I know you've heard, hopefully not up here, but I hope you've probably heard. Have you ever heard a sermon that, or a small group Bible study that goes in something like this? David comes from a family that was faithless. David was part of a nation that was faithless. They had no faith. So David's given the responsibility of his dad to run out and bring some provisions to the soldiers, to the king, and to his brothers. And so David runs out, and just as he runs out, he, he sees and hears some big goon walking out on the field defying God. And so little David, right, the runt of the litter, who takes care of the sheep because that, that was a nasty job, and the youngest son got that, he runs up and he says, why don't one of you guys do something? And, Go fight that guy. And they all make, yeah, who do you think you are? You little Roman, why don't you go back to taking care of the sheep? Leave your provision, you go back home. Who do you think you are? Right? They're all scared to death. So um, David says, well, well, then I'll go. And they all kind of laugh. Eventually somebody hears, and so they take him to Saul, the king. And, and 
Saul should have been the one to go, right? He's the king. He represents the people. He should, Saul should have gone. He's, a, he's afraid just like the rest of them. He won't go. <laughs> David, we don't know how old he was, maybe teenagers. He's like, well, I'll go. So he goes, and he won't wear Saul's armor and take a sword. He goes out, and he's got a sling because, you know, that's what he did. I guess he shot the sling when he's taking care of the sheep, maybe shot it at coyotes or whatever he did, or just target practice. And he you know, picks up some stones, walks out, and the giant trash talks, right? You, you can read it. He trash talks. And here's little David. He trash talks back. Not nearly as good as Goliath, though, right? You, you can tell he's, he's learning to trash talk, right? Well, mm, well, same to you, right? He says stuff like that. Like what Goliath said, he just repeats. He, he can't even m- make it up too well, right? <laughs> so, and the, he's, he's angry, right? The giant is angry that not only they sent this little kid, he doesn't have any armor on, he doesn't have a weapon, he doesn't have a helmet, he has nothing. And so he, he, he is so angry, he's ready, he's walking toward the guy. David puts a sling or stone in the sling, slings that hits him in the head, how to miss that big head, right? Falls to the ground. Now, Goliath's not dead yet. David goes up, takes Goliath's sword out of his hand, and cuts off his head with his own sword. You face giants, don't you? Maybe your boss is like a giant. Your financial situation is like a giant. Your kids, kind of like the giant, your parent. You, you face difficulties that, that you can't handle. You know what? You need to face those giants like David. And you need to reach into the bag of whatever skills God has given you whatever expertise he's allowed you to put together, and you need to use that to defeat your giants. And just as God defeated David's giants, if you use what God's given you, you can defeat your giants too. You've heard something like that? That preaches, right? That's not the gospel. That's not Bible. That's heresy. And if you follow that through, (laughs) you may be condemned forever. The Bible's not self-help. It's not take what gifts you have, take the skills, take what you know, and use it to that. No, no, no. What's the point of how that goes? Here's the point. God uses the weakest to accomplish his purpose to prove he's the one doing it. David goes as God's representative in God's power. God is the victor through the weakest God brings deliverance. God will bring deliverance and redemption and and victory to all of his people through one representative. That's the story. It's not this. It's not jumping from a text to the reader because think it through. If we can be like David without Jesus coming and living and dying and being raised for our sin, God was stupid. Why would he send his son to go through all that Isaiah 42, 53 stuff if he didn't have to? If you can do it, you can follow David's example. You can keep, if, God, if you can do it without Jesus, why would God send his son? So we don't do this. We do this. How does, right? Here's the mountain, remember the mountain? How does that little incline of the mountain in David and Goliath, how does that move to the ultimate summit, Jesus, the weakest, representing his people and bringing victory that they did not deserve or own? They're all scared to death. They don't deserve that victory. They didn't earn anything. A A weak representative wins the day. Just like Isaiah 42. Just like, that kind of sounds like Isaiah 53, doesn't it? So we don't do this jumping over Jesus. We move along the storyline and certain themes will resonate in the story as we go. Now, you don't want to do that too quickly. You know, sometimes you, oh, so we just read the Bible and we say, oh, this is about Jesus. You do your homework, right? I would say the more deeply you understand the passage, the more insightful will be how it's moving you to Jesus and after. Make sense? That's how we read the Bible.
Um, now let me show you. Now, now so I, I remember when, when, when we talk about this in seminary, some students would get nervous, right? And they'd say, well, I know one thing. I'm never preaching from the Old Testament then. That's scary. I don't know how to do that. Um, so I will only preach from the New Testament. So this is New Testament here, right? Now the text is after the cross. So this is New Testament. And here we are, right? So I'll only preach this. Then I'm safe. I'm after Jesus. He'll be part of the story. So I'll do this. Hmm. That's a problem. And here's why it's a problem. Um, let me see if I can explain it with, that, with Paul, right? Paul wrote a whole bunch of letters in the New Testament. Um, you've probably heard the expression, and it's true to some degree, not explicit, not exactly, but it's true to some degree. Most of Paul's letters open in half. And what they mean, excuse me, you probably heard it this way. The first part of each of Paul's letters is theology. The second part is application. Now, th that's somewhat true. It would be more accurate to say this. The first half of Paul's letters are in the indicative mood, right? The indicative means you're just making statements. This happened, that happened, this happened, that. You're not telling anybody to do anything, right? The first half of Paul's letters is indicative. Just say, here's what happened, boom, boom, boom. He's recording something. The second half of Paul's letters is almost always in the imperative mood. The imperative mood is telling somebody what to do. You're commanding them, right? First half indicative. Second half, imperative. That's more accurate. What does Paul write all those indicatives about in his letters? Well, you check it out. Right? Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, you check them out. It's not just random theology. It's not just general theology. It's Christology. Almost all of Paul's letters begin with indicative statements about Jesus who he is, what he came to do. That's what the first half of all the letters are about. Then what Paul does, so in the beginning of his letters, we don't want to go text to reader because here's what happens. And I know you've, you've, you've heard this or seen this, right? A typical preacher, small group, whatever, here's what's going to happen. You're going to preach on Galatians. So we'll do um, three sermons on one through three and 85 sermons on four through six. Why? Well, because all that indicative theology stuff, we'll blow through that. And then we will pound our fist on application and imperative for, for years to come. Yeah, so what are we doing? We're saying, yeah, do this, do this, do this. But you kind of forget why and how you're doing this. That's kind of the point. So here's what Paul does in the letters and what then we need to make sure we do. You go from the text to where the text is leading you. The text is leading you to Jesus, who he is and what he did. And then through the cross, we go to the reader. That's what Paul does. That's what we do. So read the letters, study the letters in their context. The imperatives are based on the indicatives. So even in the New Testament, you got to make sure you're coming back to what Jesus does and how he does it. Um, here's my Acts quote. I don't know that this has, so this is kind of a Charles conjecture, all right? Take it for what it's worth, nothing. <laughs> Here it is. In Acts, we're told, uh, Acts kind of picks up right where Luke ends. So we read the Emmaus stuff in Luke 24. Acts 1 picks up kind of right after, volume 2. Luke wrote them both, volume 2, Acts, Luke, Gospel, volume 1. So Acts chapter 1 <laughs> is all about what happens after the resurrection. And so the whole book of Acts is what happens after the resurrection, right? Well, Jesus is still here before the ascension, which happens at the end of chapter one, right? So in the, in the middle of, actually the beginning of chapter one, Luke tells us what Jesus did before he ascended. Like, what did he do? Kind of hang out. Here's what he did. After his suffering, so after the crucifixion, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. After crucifixion, after resurrection, he presented himself alive. Right, so now we're back on Easter morning and all the other appearances, right? He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciple. He appeared to, right, he appeared to all these people, right? Many convincing proofs he was alive. Then, and look at this. He then appeared to them over a period of 40 days. You ever realize that? Like Jesus doesn't ascend for over a month. He kind of hangs out. 
after crucifixion, after the resurrection, he hangs out with it for 40 days. What do you think he did? Oh, it tells us. He taught his disciples about the kingdom of God. Where's the kingdom of God? Presented in the scriptures. Jesus taught the disciples how to read the Bible. I'm convinced that in those 40 days, Jesus said, now let me show you the lenses you need to wear when you read the Bible. The only Bible they had was Old Testament at this point. He showed them the kingdom of God and how he is the king of the kingdom and how it all fits together. Jesus appears and for 40 days, he teaches them how to read the Bible. So after that, when you read the rest of the Bible, they do exactly what Jesus explains in Luke 24, in John 5, because he teaches them, and they now have the right glasses to read the Bible. One of my uh, favorite quotes um, should make you a little nervous. It, may, it may, makes me nervous sometimes, but we have to say it. And uh, our small group leaders need to hear it, and uh, our teachers need to hear it, and the people that lead small groups need to hear it. And it's uh, a little scary. Here's what it says. Any sermon, any Sunday school lesson, any small group study, any, right, any, any, any sermon that aims to apply the biblical text to the congregation, small group, youth group, children, and does so without making it crystal clear that it is in Jesus alone and through Christ alone that the application is realized. You got that? Let me read that part again. Any sermon that aims to apply the biblical text to the congregation and does so without making it crystal clear that it is in Christ alone and through Christ alone that the application is realized is not a Christian sermon. It may be a really good Bible study. It may be a great treatment of that psalm. It, it's not a Christian sermon, though, right? It's you know kind of an Old Testament look at this. It may be a great exposition. It's not a Christian sermon. Now, the, the next two sentences make it worse. I'll read the first one. Just I, I want you to get this. Any sermon that aims to apply the biblical text to the congregation and does so without making it crystal clear that it is in Christ alone and through Christ alone that the application is realized is not a Christian sermon. It is at best an exercise in wishful and pietistic thinking. It is at worst demonic in its Christ-denying legalism. If the Bible's a rule book and you can keep the rules and earn the prize and you don't need Jesus, that's Christ-denying legalism. If the Bible's a collection of examples, you kind of pick the right examples, emulate the examples, and you're in, and you don't need Jesus for that. That's Christ-denying legalism. Graham Goldsworthy wrote that. He's from, uh, from Australia. Uh, but I think what he wrote is right. So our challenge, um, I don't want to scare you. <laughs> our challenge is read the Bible. And I would say, say it like, I'll give you four questions and three statements. First, I'll give you the statements. Search the scriptures. If, if, if the scripture is eternal and you're eternal, that's a pretty good thing you should invest in, don't you think? Right? So invest in eternal things like the Bible and people. Right? If people are eternal, invest in those things, right? not in things that are going to leave here. So search the scriptures. Here's a harder one. Allow the scriptures to search you. When you're reading the Bible, yeah, allow it to ask you questions. Um, I, was, I was at a conference this, uh, this past weekend, and I, I said at one point, it, it's always kind of amazing to me how those who start the conversation control the conversation. You ever notice that? And we like that. That's why um, it's so significant whoever sets the agenda for the meeting. Whoever sets the agenda, they control them. They're controlling what you're going to talk about, what you're not going to talk about. Well, whoever controls the, whoever starts the conversation controls it. 
So we walk up to you. Hey, what do you think the Eagles are going to do? Hey, how about those Sixers? Well, I can't wait to, to, the, to the new player come. Right? If you're if you're asking the questions and you're start, you're controlling the conversation. We're going to stay off those topics there, and I'll talk about that. I'm going to control it. Allow God to start the conversation. Sometimes. How do you do that? You don't come with your wish list. You open the Bible, and just read it and say, Lord. What, what do you want to say to me here? Search the scriptures. Allow the scripture to search you. And third, and how does the scripture lead you to Jesus? It better lead you to Jesus in application. It better lead you to Jesus that it's through him and what he's done that makes what you're thinking about a possibility. It's not self-help. This is gospel. Four questions that pretty much say the same thing, and I know you've heard me say this if you've ever come on Sundays. What's the passage teaching? What's it teaching about God? What's it teaching about me or people? And how does it lead me to Jesus? That, there are the questions. So um, I'll give you one example, and then we're done. And next week, what we're going to do, I'm go- I'll think of different, different things we've looked at, maybe over the past few months or whatever, and I'll show you why we do some of what we do by looking at some messages, looking at some things, and hopefully you'll begin to see how this gets fleshed out in what we do. So we'll do something, I think I've done something in women's ministry, maybe we'll do that from Elijah, we'll pick up some sermons we've done, and we'll explain it. I just finished, I finished Leviticus yesterday. Um, A lot of blood and guts, right, we talked about that. Um, So I started Numbers, and It's kind of interesting in Numbers because Numbers picks up where Exodus ends, right? So Leviticus is kind of like, you know, a little parenthesis, right? Here's all the junk you do with the tabernacle, right? So Exodus ends and then Numbers picks up. And it starts with a census and ends with a census. That's why it's called Numbers or counting everybody. And Numbers says, uh, okay, now we're getting ready to leave here. You know, we're going to take off from Sinai. We're headed to the promised land. A few things you have to remember. And number one, Every year, you're going to celebrate Passover. Now, Passover was when the lamb got killed and the blood kind of painted on the door, and then the angel of death passed over, right? So the moral of that story is the Israelites were no better than the Egyptians. They deserved to have the firstborn die exactly like the Egyptians. If God's going to be just, and he is perfectly just, the Israelites are just as guilty as the Egyptians. So it's not, they're not guilty. No, no, no. But if you, and and I have the sneaking suspicion, if an Egyptian would have believed and would have killed a lamb and painted his or her door, I kind of think the angel of death would have passed over the Egyptian's house too right? Are you going to believe what God says? So, kill the lamb, the innocent victim, right? Dying for the painted door, the angel of death passes over. So, but you're no better than the Egyptians. You're just as guilty as them. But then, in Numbers, it says, okay, now, I want you to number all of the Levites, and I want you to number all the firstborn from all the other tribes. Well, what's that about? Oh, here's what that's about. God says, And he's allowed, God says that. Since the firstborn should have died, but my substitute allowed them to live, that firstborn is now mine. But rather than, you know, mess up whole family systems and all, I will take the Levites. The Levites will substitute for all the firstborn. The Passover lamb substituted to keep them alive. Now the Levites substitute for the firstborn in their service and dedication to God. By the time you get to the New Testament, oh, Paul, he learned how to read the Bible. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's reading the story, right? Not not a prophecy in word, a prophecy in picture. Jesus, the Passover lamb, the substitute for us. And then we, as Christ's followers, we become his 
because of the fact that he re we are his in creation and we're doubly his because of redemption. It's his story, right? It's one big man. Don't get lost in the cul-de-sacs. One big story. There are kind of a semi-technical um, terms for the stuff that we've been talking about. So I mentioned that we read the Bible as a big story. The technical term for that is, as I said a few weeks ago, we read the Bible as a meta-narrative, right? A narrative that is beyond. Meta is Greek, just means beyond. We read the as a, we read the Bible as a big narrative that everybody fits into. It's our story. We don't get a new story. That's our story. We read. That's what I meant when I said we read ourselves into that story. We read ourselves on that line. We don't create a new line. That's our story. The word for what we're talking about now, how we read the Bible hermeneutically, we read it Christotelically. Now, you may think Christocentrically, and to be, to be honest, most people who would understand Christocentric and Christotelic, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. They often mean almost the same thing. The point that I like, I like Christotelic because telos in Greek means goal or end. Centric means that that's the center. Well, look, let's be honest. Jesus is not the center of every verse in the Bible. A whole bunch of verses have nothing to do with Jesus. But the whole Bible is Christotelic. It has its, it, as its goal and climax in Jesus. That's why we say the Bible is a point and a purpose. The point's Jesus, purpose leads them. That's Christotelic. So it's kind of a nuance um, that I kind of appreciate. If you don't, that's fine. You can read the Bible as Jesus' story. Same thing. Lord, it's uh, pretty amazing to... Uh, Think about this uh, almost miraculous book. Over 40 authors, 66 books, written over a period of 2,000 years, 2,000 years ago. And yet, it's one story that fits together perfectly. And what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before Jesus' birth fits exactly into what happened when he was born and what will happen when he returns. Lord, forgive us for... Uh, not spending more time in this uh, miraculous book you've given. But Lord, when we read it, help us um, to read it with the right lenses. To not read it thinking that somehow, if we get the rules, if we get the right examples, and we jump through all the hoops, then we get it. The Bible points us to him. And there's no place that points us to him as clearly and perfectly as the Bible. So help us to become students of the Bible. Reading it, searching it, allowing it to search us, and allowing it to lead us to Jesus. And as we do, we'll come with all of our faults and our failures and all of our warts and our sins, but we'll find our substitute who took care of all that and now energizes us and tells us to go and be his representatives to continue what he started. Lord, thanks for that privilege. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.